This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Um, I'm Mike Kalichman. I'm director for the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology. This program is part of an ongoing series that we call Exploring Ethics, hosted here at the Fleet Science Center. The purpose of the series has been to try and bring the public and scientists together to talk about controversial areas of new developments in science and technology so we can identify where the ethical challenges are and find the best possible solutions to those challenges. Tonight's program is part of a focused series that's within that larger series with a, with a look at some issues that come up with a particular area of research involving HIV and sequencing the virus, looking at its differences between individuals and being able to potentially say important things about how the virus has moved from one person to another, but at the same time creating a risk that people will, um, will have their information compromised, that other people will be able to find out about what's in their, um, you know, what, what information they have. So to, in order to maximize the value of this research and to minimize the risk that people will have their privacy compromised. Um, Susan Little from UCSD and I have, have an NIH grant. This is, as I said, the second in a series looking at those issues. So we're going to be looking generally at privacy issues tonight at the beginning, but more specifically at that question in the context of this kind of research where somebody has HIV and asking questions about how to deal with, with that issue. So without any further announcements, um, I'm going to introduce this evening's speaker, Stahl Vinterbo, who is part of this project at UCSD with Susan and me. Stahl is an associate professor in biomedical informatics at UCSD. Um, and what that means is that he is expert in the computing end of these things and knows very much some of the challenges to be able to protect privacy, some of the, some of the issues we need to address. Um, and at the same time, what I've learned in working with him is that those challenges, as important as they are, are ones that are rooted in things that are often beyond the mathematical and computing understanding of most of us. So Stahl is somebody who has that understanding and is going to do what he can to help us understand what the issues are and hopefully give you a new perspective on privacy and how we should handle those issues. So I want to welcome Stahl for our speaker. Oh, thank you, Mike. Um, today I'm going to speak about um, a couple of things. Uh, to start out with, I'm going to talk about why we should care about privacy, because I sometimes have the feeling that that is not entirely clear to us, um, and that this protection of privacy is not something you achieve once and then you have it. You kind of have to adapt. It's an ongoing process that you always have to stay on top of. And that in this process, we should also strive to employ as much of a formal analytic methodology and tools that we have available to us because intuition is often steering us wrong. So, so why should we care about privacy? Well, I have two reasons listed here. Um, to start out with, I believe it is the foundation of our democracy. So uh, we have the secret ballot, and it's a long-standing tr tradition that voting should be private. 
Now, what would happen if voting was public so that uh, what you voted was immediately for everyone to see? Well, for one, it could create a marketplace for votes. People could buy votes and sell votes because the uh, non-privacy of these votes would allow a purchaser of a vote to verify that he got the vote that he paid for. And, even worse, uh, the payment for this vote could be an absence of violence. So you could be coerced into voting like someone else thinks you should. So this illustrates uh, that not only is the individual at risk, but also uh, political systems and not only the individual. So the second example is in healthcare. So uh, privacy in healthcare has a very long tradition and was codified in the Hippocratic Oath. So, and sort of questions to you um, could be if there is a disease that uh, society finds stigmatizing, uh, if your health records were public, would you get tested or would you partake in a study of, of such a disease if everybody else could immediately find out? And this sort of publishing of this, these health information bits uh, not only hurts you, but in your um, sort of unwillingness to expose yourself, uh, studies would get less participants, which would um, slow down research, which would slow down uh, progress in healthcare. So we have this both individual and societal aspect to privacy. So the types of privacy breaches one hears of in the media are often sort of these theft and loss aspects, which is the first bullet point here. That, uh, for instance, uh, TJ Maxx gets hacked and uh, a whole boatload of uh, credit card numbers and associated information gets stolen. Or um, um, someone loses a portable storage device with um, personal health information on it. That's the loss part. So these things happen all the time, and there are per year millions of, say, health records that are lost this way. Um, another sort of aspect of, of breach is where, for instance, one combines two by themselves somewhat innocent pieces of information and is able to infer or something that is sensitive, and these could come from two, say, anonymized data sets or, or some way of inferring from something, something else. And this comes in sort of two flavors. Uh, one is sort of the anonymity tradition, where uh, one seeks that an data is anonymized so that there is no... Uh, explicit identifier of anyone in a particular record. And uh, this is kind of what the uh, rules and regulations uh, regarding health information uh, are centered around, this notion of anonymity. Another thing is to uh, gain access to inferences about someone you already know something about, a particular person. 
and uh, what can you learn in addition by receiving a particular piece of information uh, or a particular data set that has been anonymized, for instance. That's another sort of type of breach that could happen. And interestingly enough, the second type, this if you block the inference about someone you know, then you also block the re-identification, the first type of inference. So the second one is, is in some sense, a stronger type of breach method. So in order to protect ourselves against this, one can sort of um, view this in a more sort of information security framework. And in this framework, it is usual to think about security and privacy as a process, as I mentioned. And uh, the uh, purpose of this process is to adapt to changing circumstance, be it technological or legal or social. And this process has, in this figure here, five steps. So you could start with trying to figure out what do I need to protect and uh, what do I need to protect it against. And this is called risk modeling. You kind of uh, try to create an image of, of what you really have to set out to do. And then you codify uh, this image into a policy, and then you uh, implement the tools that you need to enforce or put into life this policy. And then afterwards, after you've done that, you can start evaluating how this, what you just implemented, how does this work? That's the final part. And then when you have information about how it works, you can adjust your risk model and go through this cycle again. So, uh, so why is this hard? We do it all the time with other things like building cars or bridges, and it seems to work well there. And um, so one thing I wrote here is uh, intuitions about privacy are often wrong. So by intuition, I mean arriving at an idea or conclusion without knowing how you got there. So the opposite would be sort of a, a sequence of rational, logical steps to arrive at an idea or a conclusion. So this non-analytic Uh, decision-making tool that intuition is, is very helpful to us in our daily lives when we drive cars, when we figure out what to eat, when we dress ourselves walking down the street, etc. And um, uh, because we can't analyze everything we do, because there's just not time. We, We don't have the, this is not how we work. And, uh, but in order for this intuition, this, this tool that we have to work well, it must at least to, to a large degree be based on what we've seen before and uh, our experiences. So the more typical the situation, the more useful our intuition becomes. So now if I were to construct or try to build a computer program that picks out faces in a photograph, then looking for something that looks like the uh, National Geographic's most typical face on the planet, like here in the picture, that would be a a good strategy, and I think it would work well. But uh, 
This strategy could be subverted by someone uh, wearing a Krusty the Clown mask. Because uh, Krusty the Clown is not really what we see every day, and uh, I wouldn't have thought for looking for Krusty the Clown. It's a sort of very edge case far out there, unlikely to happen. So this, this strategy of, of, of looking for the typical, this intuitive strategy, can be sort of subverted by an adversary who knows about this and is actively trying to create a situation that we haven't been in before or that we haven't thought about. So uh, consider the following situation. Uh, a big fear when one is uh, sort of producing uh, anonymized data sets for dissemination is the existence of some unique pattern in this data uh, that can be found again somewhere else in some other data set that is not anonymized. So a, a very famous example of this is when Latanya Sweeney, at the time a graduate student at MIT, uh, identified uh, the then Governor Weld's medical record in a data set containing medical information that was uh, uh, assumed to be an anonymized and safe to disseminate. And she did this by looking for the unique or the pattern of um, uh, gender, birth date, and zip code in another place, namely the Cambridge, Massachusetts voter registration list. And it was unique there and unique in the health record. So it linked the health record with the identity of the governor. So uh, we were well sort of served by being afraid of these unique patterns in data. But is uh, the absence of such a, of a particular pattern, is that dangerous as well? Now, uh, let's pretend I just learned that there is no patient that is male, age 30, has secondary diabetes, and is HIV negative in the local hospital database. And last Sunday at my neighbor Bob's uh, 31st barbecue, sort of birthday barbecue, he told me while he was flipping burgers that um, uh, his doctor at the local hospital had told him that he had to be careful about uh, drinking soda because of his secondary diabetes. So now I know that Bob is not registered as being HIV negative in the database. So this is a piece of information that might be very interesting to me. So, and this is, uh, so I, this pattern of, I learned that this patient doesn't exist. And one would think that, okay, I, this doesn't exist, so I can't link it to anywhere. So it should be safe, right? But I was able to use some additional information to infer something about my neighbor Bob. So, uh, which is not as intuitive as the first example. So, an intuition is also uh, notorious for being unreliable when it comes to things like risk and uh, probabilities, for instance. Um, 
Let me give you an example, a well-known example called the Monty Hall problem. And um, so the scenario is as follows. You're on a game show, and the host, Monty, presents you with three doors, closed doors, behind which one of which one uh, behind one of which there is a prize that you want. And uh, Monty then says, pick a door. And you go and say, pick door A. And then before you're allowed to open the door, Monty, knowing well where the prize is, opens door C, which behind which is nothing. And then, before you're allowed to open your door, he gives you the chance of switching Instead of A, open the other closed door, B. Now the question is, should you switch or should you not switch or does it not matter? The interesting thing is that the the answer to this question is uh, even by people who work with probabilities daily, highly unintuitive. Because switching increases your probability from one-third to two-thirds. So, which is, wow, how, how does that work? And, uh, yeah, it requires some analysis that even after you've done it, it's like, really? So, it's, um, it's, uh, so this is why in this setting of privacy where uh, we have both risk and probabilities and in addition we have an adversary, it's extra... Uh, there's an extra incentive to really apply uh, sort of this, this rigorous uh, method of analysis and mathematics and proofs to protecting your privacy. So, as I said, uh, formalism and rigor and proofs. So these should include statements that are formal and verifiable, meaning that you can prove them, about what is protected and against what it is protecting, to what extent and at what loss of value. The interesting part, these two last points can form a basis of a cost-benefit analysis. Um, And as you know, many things in society are, are... Subjects, many decisions we make as a society are subject to such analyses. For instance, traffic regulations. You could make sure that there are no deaths by car accidents by banning all cars, but that would not really follow the, the, the optimal point, according to our society, on such a, a spectrum of, of, of uh, cost-benefit analysis. So, um, if you can do that, then you can form policies that are based on, on, on a real um, privacy utility trade-off, which is very difficult to do otherwise. And um, also, if you remember back to our little process with the five bubbles, there was one that says evaluation. And this evaluation you can do along several dimensions. For instance, uh, you could... Um, analyze and say something about the method you use to extract information from a data set that has sensitive information in it. So, say, be anonymize that data set or something. Or you could try and say something about the anonymized data set itself. 
And you could evaluate by, for instance, every morning checking the New York Times front page or page two and see if there's a big sort of uh, headline about some disastrous privacy breach. So this is what I would call the sort of head in sand or ostrich approach by waiting for the disaster to happen. Uh, You could improve on this quite well by trying to say, if you have an anonymized data set, trying to see if you could break your own privacy protections in some sense and and try to reestablish the identity of some people in this data set. It's kind of the empirical approach. The problem with the empirical approach is that it only tells you half the story. It tells you something when your method is blatantly bad. Basically, if you can do it, if you can break it. But if you can't break it, that doesn't mean that someone else with more resources or different information available to them um, can't do it. In particular, if you as the ethical researcher, for instance, or, or constructor of this protector of this data are bound by laws and regulations, which maybe an adversary is not. And um, the final sort of, or even better than that, would be that you write down formally uh, the promises that your method makes sort of in terms of mathematical proofs and your, your formal statements about the... Um, what you expect to be true for this to work, and so on. And then you can publish this freely to the entire community, and uh, it can then try to find, poke holes in your theorems and your proofs and give you very precise feedback on, on where things break down so you can uh, move forward. So now let me round off with showing you an example of how such a... Uh, a utility privacy um, trade-off can look like in the context of what Mike talked about in the beginning, this HIV research. And uh, the example here is a HIV infection incident map. And it is uh, kind of a map of, of where in San Diego um, uh, infections occur. So, and we use, without going into the mathematical detail, a formalism or statements about the privacy that we uh, wish to achieve called differential privacy. Now, it's kind of an emerging standard still, even though it's almost 10 years old. And it says something about what is protected, which is the true location of any incident, against inference in the presence of arbitrary additional information. So you don't have to make assumptions about what an adversary could have access to. And the measure we use is the increase in probability of you learning any specific location incurred by actually disseminating the map. So it's like a before and after and the difference in this uh, probability. And the loss of value is the incurred loss of accuracy when you require this change in probability to be small. So, and it is the mathematical relationship between points three and four here that offers us a dial, a knob that we can turn. We can set at what point we wish this uh, method to work. And it looks graphically like this. 
So on the left you see a non-private, completely fictitious for this purpose, map with three clusters of incident breakouts. And we also have uh, a knob uh, with a value we call just arbitrarily epsilon. And uh, it ranges from, from as close to zero as you want to infinity. And um, so in the middle, we have a somewhat small value for epsilon. And this epsilon means that um, a small epsilon means low accuracy and low privacy risk. So we see that at this very low setting, there is not much accuracy in this map, and it um, is also not very useful. Uh, seeming. So now we turn it up a little bit, the knob. We sacrifice a little bit of, um, of um, privacy for some better utility. The point is here that we know how much. That's the, the cool thing about this. So now an epsilon 1 means sort of a ratio of these probability would be around 2.7. Not that this matters right now. And uh, is a very sort of standard value in the literature for tests or for visualization of these things. And we can see that at this point, if we were to intervene with, say, a needle truck, um, sending the needle truck to the locations on our right-hand map, so to these clusters, which correspond fairly okay to these clusters, then we would be hitting uh, appropriate spots. Okay, I hope this was uh, a somewhat useful introduction to, to this realm of, of privacy. And uh, what remains is thank you for your attention. So as you probably gathered from the program, uh, we now have a panel that's going to join Dr. Vintabo in discussing the issues that we brought up tonight on, on privacy. And I'm going to ask each of the panelists first to say, have a couple of minutes to sort of give their perspective on the issues they've just heard about, tell you a little bit how it fits in with who they are. Um, the first panelist to um, the right of our speaker stall is um, Harold Cooks. Harold um, is self-identified as HIV positive for 25 years. And so he certainly would have a good perspective on what it means to live with HIV and some of the issues that might go with how one feels about dealing with the question of privacy. So, Harold, why don't you take a couple of minutes and give us your thoughts. Okay, since I have to go first, let's call Don. Um, being HIV positive, I suppose, my concern about privacy is other people finding out and how they respond to me because I'm HIV positive. Now, I say that, that's more the way I felt at the beginning. Now I don't really care that much. But as far as other people that I work with um, being HIV positive, that's the biggest concern. People discriminating against them because they're HIV positive. So a lot of times people don't even want to get tested. Um, even though they think they might be positive, they don't want to get tested because they fear what could happen or what could happen because, you know, I've gotten letters from the VA because information's gotten lost somehow or from Target or other places. So it happens. So something like that is pretty important. 
um, as far as someone thinking less of you or treating you differently. So that's why I think it's very important overall um, privacy. So I don't have two whole minutes. Okay, thanks. And, um, and to Harold's right is Miguel Guaycoechea. Um, and Miguel is an MD. Um, he is a researcher um, who works on the field of HIV. He's also the uh, head of infectious diseases at Scripps Clinic. And um, he has a perspective then of seeing patients and worrying about how to deal with HIV. So, Miguel, what are your thoughts? Sure, thank you. So, um, as a physician, um, privacy uh, is critical in terms of forming a working or functional relationship between a physician and a patient. There has to be trust. And for that to be possible, you have to have confidence, uh, mutual confidence, uh, both in the provider's sincerity and and abilities, as well as uh, assurances of privacy that what you're staying and what's going on in that environment is for the purposes of the benefit of the patient. And the information that is gathered there, particularly when you're talking with HIV, particularly as it has to do with sexuality, is uh, very private, uh, both because it has health implications as well as social implications, as we've heard. So when that relationship or when that sense of security or or honesty is broken, uh, it's very difficult to repair, um, whether the breach is intentional or or accidental. Um, On the other hand, I'm unable to do my, my job without information. Whether that information is a simple lab telling me that there's, uh, for example, a blood culture, something's positive, and I can act on it, or if I'm, you know, that's in treating the individual, uh, or if I'm making policy and I'm treating a community or a society as my patient, then I need to understand uh, where the disease processes are happening. And so balancing that, both equally important things of both having accurate information as well as protecting individual privacy um, are, are critical. Thank you. Thank you, Miguel. Um, and um, to his right, the final panelist is Robert Morasco. Robert is an attorney with Procopio, Corey, Hargreaves, and Savage, uh, which I believe we've heard of several times on KPBS, if you listen to KPBS. Um, he, is, um, he works with corporate clients and individuals and um, is uh, familiar generally familiar familiar generally with um, issues in law and some of the com- issues that might come up, but he has not worked and I think I remember this correctly specifically on HIV cases, but um, he has a perspective that can help us keep on the right track in thinking about where this might come down in terms of law issues or legal issues. So, Bob, thank you, Mike. As Mike mentioned, my name is Robert Morosco. I work at the Procopio firm. And prior to starting at the Procopio firm, I spent five years with the U.S. Department of Justice as a federal prosecutor. And what I do now is I I use that experience in dealing and helping with companies uh, who have data privacy issues and security, as well as um, just dealing with the legal implications of HIPAA and other privacy laws. I'm excited at the prospect that Stahl might be venturing into a new area by which we can protect information because, in my opinion, uh, HIPAA is completely insufficient to protect our information, and the privacy laws that exist to protect other non-health information uh, are also uh, varied by state to state 
and so impose different obligations on the companies in the different states, and so do not do a good job of keeping our information that should be kept private, private. And so I'm here to, to talk a little bit about uh, the legal implications both in the healthcare context and potentially in the, the criminal context of, of how the new development in medical technology and tracking of disease and things like that uh, can impact society. Thank you. So um, maybe we should start with a question of you, Bob, because you mentioned HIPAA, and not everybody may be clear on what HIPAA is. So do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, HIPAA is the federal legislation that is meant to protect uh, our health information. It stands for Health uh, Information Portability, Health, ins- excuse me, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. When you think of it that way, you realize the true intent of the statute, which was really meant to protect and encourage the sharing of medical information of patients among and between healthcare providers so as to improve the healthcare that we are all receiving. But all it has really done, in my opinion, and I'll leave it to the physicians to to talk more about the impact they've experienced with it, is put up hurdles and obstacles when it comes to the sharing of information. Um, generally, my experience is that healthcare providers, they're allowed to share, share it somewhat unrestricted, um, but there are a lot of hurdles you have to go over to begin with uh, before you even get there. When you're sharing it between a healthcare provider and a business that's working for it, like a, a hospital and a law firm, or a doctor's office and the management company that's staffing his office or her office for them, there are a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome when it, with respect to how to share that information and what can be done with it. Thank you. Perfect. And actually, um, I've just been handed a card of questions, which it looks like it was designed to ask one question of each of you. So um, you've answered one of those four questions. It's basically, basically what is HIPAA? Um, another question has to do with what are the limits of HIPAA protection, and, I've, and I'm wondering if Miguel and Harold have any thoughts on that. Uh, I don't know who might want to start on that. Yeah, Miguel's noticing that you know when it comes to the limits of HIPAA, it really is more of a, a legal right. issue. So <laughs> what are the limits of HIPAA? That's a pretty broad question. Um, so essentially, uh, HIPAA like I said, is designed to encourage the sharing of health information with the intent of, of improving the care that we receive. When it comes to the limitations, so it has a very broad definition of how it defines what health information is and what is protected health information, which is essentially any information that relates to an individual's health care or payment for health care that also identifies the individual. Okay, And we talked a little bit, I think Stahl mentioned a bit about de-identification. If you are able to de-identify that protected health information, that is remove all the identifying characteristics of it, you're essentially allowed to use that information freely, in theory. Okay, that, That's the concept behind it. When it's not de-identified, there are a great many restrictions. When it's actually identifying the individual who is paying for or receiving particular services, 
there are many restrictions as to what can and cannot be done with that. To, to try to enumerate what it is, I mean, it begins with any of us going into a doctor's office and filling out that, that privacy form, the acknowledgement that you've received, the f- practices, notice of privacy practices. What, is, what that document does is supposed to identify for you what the practice will or will not do with your information and possibly seek your consent to do certain things with it. So a healthcare provider, your physician, is allowed to share your information with your insurance company, uh, with a government insurance company, um, with another healthcare provider who you may, might be seeing, but they're not allowed to share things like genetic information, at least to an insurance company for purposes of underwriting. They're not allowed to sell your information unless you give your consent. Um, and, and so all of the kinds of restrictions that HIPAA sets up, they're allowed to be overcome if you give your consent. So those documents that you're getting, you kind of want to make sure you take a look at them because you might be consenting to them using your information in a way you might not want them to. We all need a lawyer when we sign those documents by our side. Um, I, was, I was interpreting that question slightly differently and maybe inappropriately, but I, I want to still go back to, um, to uh, Miguel and Harold. On the, so sort of in practice, what do you, have you seen examples where despite HIPAA, there is, there is some element of an individual's privacy compromised? In other words, is HIPAA insufficient, or in your practice so far, it's actually done a pretty good job of keeping people's um, private information private? So um, first, um, I would say, I mean, in general, healthcare providers, um, you know, we need information. We need accurate information about a particular individual. And the intent of getting and utilizing that information is good. It's for benefits for that, for that, for that individual. Um, particularly in complex cases, particularly in long-standing medical cases with individuals, it might involve a number of people. And these people can be physicians uh, to various uh, levels of care providers. Um, uh, and uh, the possibility for uh, information leaking increases as your network expands. So, that, so yes, that, I wouldn't say that by any means is HIPAA perfect. Um, more importantly, the electronic medical records uh, are also not perfect. There are several barriers uh, to getting access to information, and we see that uh, quite a bit. There's difficulty in sharing information even when you have adequate uh, permission, uh, and, and, and that slows the process. Um, so, yes, the possibility for um, you know, breach of uh, privacy could be as simple as conversations in an elevator with people who are not involved with the health care of that individual, uh, to accidental losses uh, where health information is dropped. Um, but in terms of the intention of, I would say, of both providers and people involved along that health care line uh, is uh, for the benefits of the patient and trying to, you know, uh, really sincerely trying to maintain the privacy of those, of those individuals. But without Again, without sharing that information, without utilizing it, uh, you're not able to, to benefit that patient. So it's a, uh, a bit of a, a double-edged sword, I suppose. So it's a tension between the useful information and being able to keep it private. Good. So, Harold, do you have any thoughts on that before we... I do, really quick. 
Um, as I thought about HIPAA, I first actually got annoyed because I felt like a company used HIPAA against me. And you're probably thinking, oh, that's interesting. Well, my partner and I applied for long-term care. Now, I expected to be denied until I saw the questions. The two questions that stood out were, one, do you have any type of blood disorder other than HIV? Of course, I said no. Do you have an AIDS diagnosis? Again, I said no. So I thought, whoa, they gave me some hope. So when I was denied, I just let it go until someone else brought it to my attention. Well, why were you denied? So, of course, I called and I talked, and they gave me just a little bit. They said, well, we sent you paperwork, and we sent your doctor paperwork. And I thought, okay, she showed me the paperwork, and it doesn't say why I was denied. So when I called them again, they said, well, because of HIPAA, we can't tell you. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I thought HIPAA was to protect me. <laughs> no, not you. And so, I mean, you can see where I'm going with that. I can say a lot, but um, then I'd probably start cussing. So, um, and you don't want that. So, I, I, I mean, I think you've got us all wondering, so did you ever find out what the, or they, they refused to let you know? They're working on it. They're working. Well, the okay. long-term care specialist, who's a friend of mine, actually is pushing it and trying to find out, because she doesn't even know. So at this point, it may be that somebody's done exactly what Stahl talked about. They put your information together with other information and managed to triangulate to mm-hmm. say, oh, there right. is, this person has HIV, and therefore um, maybe that's the reason they wanted to deny coverage. And I'm healthier than my partner, yeah. who got accepted, of course, but I just happen to be HIV positive. So... Okay. Well, we, we, we are, of course, making inferences here. It may be something completely different. We have no idea. Well, but that's... they've kept it from me, so I don't know. Yeah. And so Stahl had some thoughts on this, and also Stahl in the process. If you could reflect on whether improvements in technology and the way we deal with medical records have either helped or hurt us in this domain. So... Okay. Uh, first, my comments about whether sort of HIPAA is working sort of from a privacy standpoint and um, so a few years back, there was kind of um, a flurry of research reports pointing out that uh, the de-identification standard of HIPAA, uh, which is what determines whether a data set, like Rob was talking about, is de-identified, at which point you can do whatever you want with it, um, what that really means. And uh, the research pointed out that for protection of privacy, there are many examples of where this uh, de-identification standard was not sufficient. So you could break it. And in addition, what is problematic with HIPAA is, uh, in my mind, is that once you claim that you de-identified the data set, which is not hard to do because there's a cooking recipe on how to do that, it's called uh, the removal of the HIPAA 18, which is one of the two options you have to uh, de-identify a data set. And um, there are no uh, um, provisions for tracking the data afterwards. So it's very, very difficult to say that a particular breach, like in Harold's case here, actually comes from uh, a HIPAA de-identified data sets because nobody needs to track where this data set is going and who is using it, which could be a problem. So, 
And uh, that was my comment to, to the HIPAA uh, deficiencies. And then the other, where, has technology, is it helping us or hurting us in terms of protection? So uh, I think technology from sort of a health records and what in general is helping us tremendously. And I must agree with, with the sentiment of my colleagues that, um, well, uh, Miguel and Rob at least had, who haven't had the negative experience, I guess, uh, is that for the most part, the users of these data are meaning well. So they are... They're, very few people who, I think, nefariously try to abuse information. That being said, so in, in this context, uh, the technology of health records and so on uh, in general and medical technology in general is very useful. Um, but with this comes also the, the, the downside of availability. Sort of, it has um, sort of technology helps making things more rapidly available, easier to analyze, and easier to combine multiple sources of information. So I think um, at this point, we should realize that there are no purely technological solutions to this problem. And I think that we also need to look at sort of contractual and legal measures that in combination with technology can help. But overall, I think um, um, I'm actually not sure where I am on that question. (laughs) (laughs) Some things have helped, some have hurt. (laughs) Okay. Um, We'll go to the next question. um, I like this question a lot because it's a think-out-of-the-box sort of question that says if we're going to worry about these issues, then maybe instead of asking the question, how can we better hide information, are there ways we can do to make that information less valuable so, so that it will be less likely somebody will want to steal it? And in the case of HIV or medical issues, it might be that, for example, if we said that your insurance can't be determined based on knowing that you have an HIV diagnosis, then it's less desirable for the insurance company to try and discover that information. Um, and I, I don't know if any of you have any experience of specific approaches to make data less valuable, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe Stahl, since you have, you know, maybe just talking to it. Yeah, I think uh, that is a very good point. And um, I think this is where the non-technological approaches to privacy come in, and this would be a very good venue for this. So, and I, of course, um, uh, am uh, in favor of, of, of such a measure, sort of, um, health health care for everyone <laughs> in this in this sense and um, so I think this uh, but rem- doing this sort of for instance removing stigma this is some of the, the the vulnerability towards this is is emotional and is social and um, and I think I'm not sure how we as a society could do that in the short term for instance. Yeah, the emotional social part might be harder to protect against, but other issues that, you know, because people probably aren't necessarily going to target large groups of people for the emotional social issue. They probably target them for something that's more financial, like an insurance question, I would guess. But, but anyway. So any other thoughts on this well, approach? Well, I think in society there's less incentive for 
insurance companies to try to ascertain status. I'm not saying there is, and they certainly have that incentive. But the bigger issue is the black market value of your privacy information. It is easier these days to steal someone's health information than it is to steal their credit card number. And there are fewer protections surrounding it. Despite having a national standard in HIPAA, our health information is less protected than our financial information. And the black market uses the health information to create false insurance cards for people who are not insured and gain medical coverage that way or at least get them through the provision of care that they need on an immediate basis before it's discovered. So I think that's the bigger problem right now. So, Miguel or Harold, any thoughts on um, options here to be able to make it less desirable to steal information? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> I couldn't see you from here, but okay. Well, that's, that's fine. Again, so <laughs> I, I suppose it's an interesting question, but it's not, I mean, it's not something I spend time thinking on as a physician um, in terms of my practice. Um, I think uh, something to keep in mind uh, a little bit to sort of to address your point with sort of financial or credit card information, you know, healthcare information is complex. Um, it comes in many different forms. Um, and whether that's, you know, through written histories from the patient, through a variety of sources, uh, laboratories, and it's, and it's a range of data, some of it uh, quite, you know, um, nonspecific and others carrying much more weight. Um, a difficulty is, and a large vulnerability in the healthcare system in terms of the information, is um, our lack of, uh, you know, sort of uniform uh, electronic medical records. And so we have a system that really ranges from paper records where people write on paper charts and leave them in a lock cabinet in their office to really uh, high-level encrypted data. And so you can see differences wide differences in terms of accessibility to that data, both to people who have malintent, uh, to people who, who actually need the data and being able to access that information. Um, so, um, you know, that... Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I guess one way to try to make it less desirable to steal is, I, I hate to say it, but it's make it more available, right? If, if, it, is, if it is a system where we have a better electronic health record system and it's accessible across the board and there are checks and balances so that you know you steal someone's health identity from San Diego and try to use it in Phoenix well the people in Phoenix can actually check to see if the person is who they're claiming to be um, and and just have the protections in place so that if it is misappropriated wherever it's accessible that's going to be identifiable and therefore you know, you, you have an immediate notification that it's been abused. So this will put Stahl out of a job if we make all the data available, so I'd be interested here. <laughs> well, in, in addition to a measure like that, one could go the political route and uh, make Bob's example obsolete by providing health care for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that would okay, solve There's a lot another of good out-of-the-box solution to this problem. That's right. Okay, so... Um, and, and if you all will all help me pay for that, we'll do that immediately. Um, 
So uh, the next question is about something I plead ignorance on. Are either, any of you familiar with Apple Research Kit? Okay, I'm going to read between the lines without asking for detail on it because I think there's enough implied here that we can still handle it. This, this person's question is, what should consumers know before opting into health research managed by Apple or Google Research Kit? And so I'm just going to assume, what if a big entity like Apple or Google or Facebook or anything else is out there and, and they're, they're collecting health-related data? So they're asking you, what should you worry about, such as security of health information, acceptable methods for sharing information? What would you look at as you look at their informed consent document deciding whether you want to participate? Um, and I, I, maybe we should start with the lawyer, I guess. <laughs> what, what, what should we be looking for? <laughs> If, if you, I guess very succinctly, if you choose to go down that path, expect that your information will never be private. Uh, I, there's just, there's no way to protect it. I mean, look at what Google and, and Apple do now with, with our phones, right? They, they use our phones to determine where we are so that they can send us advertisements that are, you know, particular to where we might be and what stores we might be nearby, I mean, they're going, they're going to abuse it. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Well, I mean, to be, to be fair, I mean, so from their perspective, they're doing things to help you with a service, to give you information you might want to use. <laughs> so I have a comment on that. And uh, I think there's, there might be a need to distinguishing between Apple and Google here because uh, for Google, at least, um, we are the product that they're selling to someone else. So uh, we are not the customer. We, as users of Google services, buying their phones with Android on them and so on, we're not really Google's customers. We're what they sell to someone else. And with that in mind, it might be interesting, sort of putting that in con sort of right next to their offer of taking care of your healthcare data. It might, it's an interesting thought. <laughs> So, so your recommendation is go with Apple, not with Google, on your healthcare data. <laughs> okay, let me go on to the next question. How, during the process of preserving privacy, is the relative risk versus potential benefit of data sharing decided, healthcare versus consumer data? It is a very general question because it depends on who is doing the deciding. But um, I think this might be a question, in part, for Stahl because he thinks about how those. Trade-offs might be made. So again, um, so so during the process of trying to preserve privacy, question of what you're going to do to preserve privacy in your software, um, how is the relative risk versus potential benefit of data sharing decided? So okay, if we're going to share this with this person, who's making that calculation? It's, there's not a simple number that comes out of that and saying. So how and, and how do they do that? So. Uh, I interpret this question as, in general, how do we as a society perform a risk-benefit analysis and apply it in our decision-making? And this is by our political processes. Uh, that's the only answer I can offer. And I think uh, what certain privacy technologies allow us to do is to more precisely quantify these two things. But the decision itself and putting it into a a sort of political societal context that has to be by a political process. And I, I don't see any other way of doing it. Does anybody have anything to add to that? Because that leads 
directly to the next question, which is a political question. And I was thinking, we don't need a political question, but since we just got a political answer, this one, this one and I don't know that this is true because I haven't seen how HHS is dealing with this. That's Health and Human Services, the department in Washington. It says they keep delaying audits and enforcement of HIPAA. Do you think this is due to lobbying, public indifference, or ethical lapses? First, does anybody know about those delays? Um, because we would just be speculating otherwise. <laughs> Bob? So, so <clears throat> at the end of last year, uh, the Office of Civil Rights, which is the Division of Health and Human Services, which handles uh, violations of HIPAA, announced that it was really going to ramp up its enforcement program by conducting random audits of both healthcare providers and what HIPAA refers to as business associates. That is, those non-healthcare providers who do business with the healthcare providers and help them provide the healthcare that they do. And it, it kind of sends shockwaves through the industry, especially among the business associates, because they had never been audited before. I mean, business associates are law firms, they're copying companies, they're all kinds of, of, of businesses that don't provide health care. And honestly, I think the delay is because of the industry's pushback in, in the sense that they're terrified about what's going to happen. All the conferences I go to, you know, when, when a speaker asks, okay, how many of you have uh, had a breach that you've had to deal with this week, you know, the you know, generally three-quarters of the room puts their hands up and their response is, well, the other quarter of you just don't know that you've had a breach yet. <laughs> there are breaches happening all the time, and I just think OCR of, of HHS is going to be overwhelmed, and I think they're realizing that too. Okay. Thanks. Um, any other thoughts on that? So, so the next one... Um, uh, it, it is a question about laws, so, so Robert, since you have the, the microphone, um, and I, I recognize it's not your area, so you can defer on this if you don't want to, but it says, what are the current laws in California reconfidentiality of HIV status and MD's reporting of this to others, e.g. health agencies? Well, I know a little bit about it, um, and it, so in California... The healthcare providers and physicians are governed both by the California privacy laws as well as the criminal laws, as well as national laws like HIPAA. And both HIPAA and the California privacy laws when it comes to medical information, the Confidentiality and Medical Information Act, they permit the disclosure of, I guess, I guess, of disease that could be a public threat. Uh, now, whether that kind of falls under that umbrella, whether HIV falls under that um, umbrella anymore, um, is, I think, a little unclear, but I think some may still view it that way. And when it, when it comes to things like that, you know, most recently we hear about, you know, measles, right? And, of course... Everyone, well, measles is all over the news, and they're all discussing who has measles, and they shouldn't have been. Um, but that type of information should have been reported to the Department of Public Health 
as well as to the, the CDC on the, on the national level. And so there are restrictions, um, but it's only if there's really a public threat that they're obligated to disclose it. And I think these days, HIV would not really fall under that category. So, Miguel, do you, have, you might have personal experience from the end of having to follow the law. What, what are your thoughts on well, I am so, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was still my understanding that that was still reported in terms of new cases as well. So, so a, lot of, a lot of healthcare data, usually, so if, if you look in the level of the physician, so um, probably the only communicable disease that I am on, a, on an active basis reporting would be pulmonary tuberculosis, would be tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, because it's transmitted by um, aerosolized, basically by coughing and people breathing, is a immediate public health uh, emergency. And in those cases, you're speaking, uh, even when you have a probable case, you're speaking with the uh, county public health to identify that individual, to make sure treatment is appropriate, make sure treatment is, is uh, being administered, and as well as contacts to that information, uh, to, to contacts of that person are, are contacted and evaluated since it poses a threat both to that particular patient, their contact, family members, and the community at large. Aside from that, there's a number of, of, uh, of diseases and conditions, even outside of infectious disease, that I, I, I don't know this, uh, all the specifics, but that does include HIV, that are reported at the level of the laboratory. So a lot of that reporting happens you know, with, without my you know, knowledge of that. But that will be de-identified data you know, from regions of individuals and of, you know, having this particular diagnosis. And again, this is, this is you know, the, the way I see this as a, as a physician, um, again, um, this is not to invade somebody's privacy, but this is a measure of the overall health of your society and community. So when you look, again, to use the analogy, when you're dealing with, you know, on a patient level, with an individual level, you want to know the specifics of that person. You know, I need to know if, if he's coughing and I need a chest x-ray to know if he has pneumonia so I can give the appropriate antibiotic and the appropriate treatment. But if I'm a politician, I'm essentially, you know, politics is essentially medicine practice on a broad scope and population-based. I need to understand what populations are affected by certain uh, illnesses and, and what regions they are and what's their characteristics so that I can uh, direct uh, aid and services there. And um, in the case of HIV, that's critically important, right? So for, you know, for many years with HIV, it did not receive the appropriate public attention from, from political leaders and, 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 the, and those monies there. So even though something as sensitive as HIV it is critical that it's, it's reported and that we understand the, the demographics of it, how it's changing, so that we can address it both on individual physician basis, but, but more importantly, as a society and how we direct resources, whether it's to public health, whether it's to research, to, to address those needs. Thanks. And actually, that's a good segue into a question that combines the HIV um, you know, what we want to do is target certain communities to be able to help identify which areas are important and the question of risks of privacy and the law. So um, I forgot the number. Um, Susan can probably tell me. How many states is HIV infection of another individual, knowing an infection, criminalized? Do you remember what it is? It's 36 um, or something? or 40. Oh, 40 more, oh more than 40. Yeah. So in more than 40 states, it's criminal to have... 
32. Okay, 32. Um, 32 is a lot of states. It's criminal to, for somebody to um, have infected, knowingly infected another individual with HIV. Um, the idea of trying to figure out which communities to target for interventions, condom use, um, prophylaxis, drug treatment, getting tested, the idea of to know where to do that is, um, is aided by the kind of research that Dr. Little is doing and Dr. Maida, who is helping with the questions here as well, where they are, are looking at HIV sequences in patients and being able to see how closely they are matched one to another. And based on that, creating, they can create maps, like the incident maps Stahl was talking about, where you can say this area is a hot spot, this area isn't. So there's a trade-off here then between trying to get that information you're talking about and on the other side, in many states, um, at putting somebody at not just a little bit of risk but a high risk of being not proven to be the person infected somebody else but providing data to support the argument that they'd infected another individual. And so we haven't heard from you for a while, Harold. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I mean, what, what, how, do, how do you feel about that trade-off between getting more information to help protect against spread of HIV and personal protection of not being targeted as being somebody who might have infected somebody else? Um, one, I agree on the exchange of information, but I, I was just thinking of a situation. I used to facilitate a HIV positive, African-American HIV-positive support group, and each year when National, HIV, National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day came along, you know, the media would be at our event, and they talked to me. And so finally I told the guys, I was like, you know, they need to see that I'm not the only black positive guy in San Diego because as far as funding, they're going to think we don't need to send funding. We don't need all the funding the only, just for one guy. He's the only one. So I was like, they need to know, people need to know, you have to come out of the closet and tell people, you know, speak up because otherwise you're not going to be heard because you're not saying anything. So, I mean, so very much from a personal perspective, you're saying be more public about right. your, your diagnosis. And, and so the fact that somebody is doing a research study uh-huh. that might show that you are part of a clustered network of people that could suggest that uh, if the information is put together, as we've described before, they could say you're the one who is um, very possibly the person who's infected this other individual. Um, we can tell from other records that this occurred when you already knew you had HIV. There, there are layers here of, of, on the one hand, getting good information to help improve public protection from HIV transmission and so on. But there's also the layer of personal concern where you may not want that known because right. it would look bad in a criminal lawsuit. Right. right. I can understand, especially if someone intentionally did it. But I, I'm thinking, obviously, they're not intentionally trying to give it to someone. Yeah. I guess maybe that question of intention, maybe we should go back to the lawyer. So, what, so I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at any of the laws on this. So what, what, how, how intentional is intentional here? <laughs> it's actually more intentional than you might think. Um, so he, here in California, the requirements um, or the elements of trying to prosecute someone for intentionally infecting them with HIV um, requires that you establish that there was unprotected sexual activity while the person knew he or she was infected, that they did not disclose that they were infected to their partner, and they had the specific intent to infect the other person. 
and proof that the person simply knew he or she had HIV is not enough to show that they had the specific intent to infect the other person. And another defense to the statute here in California, obviously going back to that first element, was that there was unprotected sexual activity. If the sexual activity was protected, then that defeats the idea of there being a specific intent as well. So uh, in, in order to do that, you really have to go above and beyond just establishing that an individual has HIV. Um, and any time you try to show that someone has the specific intent to do anything, let alone try to infect another person, is going to be a pretty high hurdle to, to overcome. Well, actually, this, this brings me back to Stahl's mention of differential privacy standards, where you ask, um, how much different is it going to be? How much, how much are we really revealing about you in our data set that wouldn't already have been known by other means? This is making me think, from a legal perspective, how much more risk is somebody really at of being found criminally liable for infecting someone else with HIV when the standard of intent is sounds like a pretty high standard. So it might be... Um, do, do you mean in the situation where you can maybe identify the, the well, genetically, like the, the, well, the HIV, well, the, the, the disease itself? The, the research here is to look at the, at the genetics of the HIV in an individual, and that's like a fingerprint for that individual. So it can tell you this is very closely related between what you have and what I have. So therefore, one of us may likely have been responsible for infecting the other. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it comes up in, in two scenarios. You know, when you think about in the criminal context, right, you have a situation where there's been an infection, right, and you have an identified subject or suspect, and that person admits, right, so you're not going to need to do that analysis in that situation. Or you have the situation where you have an identified suspect who admits to the sexual activity but denies the intent. Well, the identification of the shared disease, so to say, is not really going to help in that situation either. So then you have someone who is an identified suspect but who denies there was even sexual activity. And it's too far beyond the alleged sexual activity for there to be a collection of maybe a, a sample that would contain DNA. In that situation, I think it would be relevant to using the genetic makeup of the disease that maybe the two people sh share that would go to showing that the person who's denying it actually was involved in the transmission. And then, of course, you have the situation where it's an unidentified suspect and you're trying to, it's, a, it's kind of like a whodunit. And I think it's in that situation as well where that genetic marker would be would be relevant. So it, it doesn't necessarily go to the intent, um, and it's only in those couple discrete areas where I think you know, the genetic markers are going to be an issue. Yeah, this, is a, this is an interesting dimension, and the conversation seems to have been so short so far, but we've already hit 7 o'clock. So um, what I want to do is first sum up by saying that the questions from the audience and your answers have, I, I think, been invaluable for this project to be able to think a lot more deeply about how to balance privacy issues and trying to better deal with um, HIV protections in our community. 
Um, and uh, before I thank our, our speakers, I want to just remind our audience that um, we appreciate your input. This is part of what we're doing. We want feedback, and that feedback can include your evaluation forms. But at this point, I want to th uh, thank our speakers, Stahl Vinterbo, and our three panelists, um, Harold, Miguel, and Rob, for their excellent insights. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.